musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we'll be listening to a conversation that I hope will spark a lively and widespread debate. While a number of topics will be discussed, the one that most resonates with me right now has to do with our community becoming more introspective and willing to air our dirty laundry in public. Now, what do I mean by that, you ask? Well, I think that uh, it'll become quite clear as we join Lily K. Ross and uh, Nashe Devenau, who suggest that uh, we title this uh, talk, From the Margins, which I've modified to be a conversation from the margins. However, uh, had they not suggested this title, I would have called it, It's About Time. And by that, I mean it's about time that we begin being more honest about things that take place in various shapes and forms in the worldwide psychedelic community. In other words, where are the cracks in this uh, new society that we're building? And uh, how can we patch them up to prevent them from becoming a big issue in this uh, so-called consciousness movement? Now, after we listen to Lillian Nache, I'll be back with a few more observations about things that these two interesting young women now are bringing to our attention. Welcome back to this week's episode of Psychedelic Salon. Um, I'm Lily K. Ross, and I'm joined today by the wonderful Nache Devineau. And we have, um, it's kind of come to our attention that there is a rather urgent need for conversation within the psychedelic community, whatever that phrase means, um, regarding power and structures of power and, uh, and women's issues. And so uh, Nache and I have been talking quite a bit in preparation for this podcast, but we've also really um, been paying attention to a number of conversations that we've been having uh, privately over the weekend. Both of us were in New York City for the wonderful Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference. Um, So we have named this episode Power in the Psychedelic Community, a note from the margins. Um, So I will stop talking now. Nishe, would you like to say hello and introduce yourself yeah, hi. So, um, yeah, my name is Nishe. I'm a finishing my PhD in comparative literature at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm also teaching a drug wars class about the war on drugs and reading psychedelic literature. Um, and I have been going to psychedelic conferences since 2010 pretty regularly. So it's been interesting for me to see the development in the conferences over those years and also ways that it's they have stayed the same yeah they're definitely staying the same in a lot of ways um and also changing in a lot of ways and it seems like there's some uh underground or or peripheral conversations that are happening that are slowly making their way into the broader discourse but they're definitely taking their time to do so Definitely. I, I know Catherine McLean, who presented at Horizons this past weekend, she remarked, looking at the, you know, the speaker list, that it is much more balanced in terms of, you know, gender representation than it was, like, a few years ago, um, and that there are also, like, openly gay individuals who are part of the 
you know, the speaker lineup. So there are, like, you know, hints of diversity, you know, kind of, like, coming into a more natural uh, proportion. But at the same time, there's also really dramatic lack of racial diversity and possibly even, you know, socioeconomic diversity. So I think those things are, you know, definitely worth talking about. Yeah. um, And I will on that note, just say a few words to introduce myself. Um, I am Lily Ross. I have a master's of divinity from Harvard, where I spent a lot of time studying ethical, spiritual leadership. um, And much of my spiritual community sort of circles around psychedelics um, and non-ordinary states of consciousness. Um, And then I'm most interested right now at uh, conversations at the intersection of sex, drugs, and power. And so, um, and gender, um, because I think those are are important parts of uh, really any discourse, especially in our world where there are so many different kinds of injustices related to each of those things. So, um, so it's really quite a, um, quite exciting to witness, as you're pointing out, Nishay, how there is a greater representation happening at some of these conferences. Um, There are more diverse voices being present, speaking for themselves, and, um, and, and again, these kind of conversations that are bubbling up from the margins. Uh, Yeah, no, definitely. There's, um, so I'm interested in kind of the ways that that is not, you know, as I mentioned, like, there are there seem there seem to be some demographics that are still not as represented, and perhaps also some thematic issues or you know research topics that are not represented. And I think that's worth you know possibly commenting on that, and you know publicly commenting on it just to draw attention to those issues and kind of ask why. They're not as represented, um, and because do you uh, do you have any thoughts on why the racial piece doesn't seem to have made very much progress at all? You know, that's a really um, good question. The first thing that comes to my mind is the idea of tokenism. So um, I'm often approached as a woman when people ask me to speak or to contribute something, I'm often approached as, as a woman, like, Oh, we need, we need more women. And there's a part of me that's like, Oh, I'm so glad that that, that the issue of like having more perspectives present is, is, you know, on this person's mind and that they're wanting to include that in their event. But I also want my work to be recognized, not just because I'm a woman, but, but because the work speaks for itself, you know? Um, and so Mm -hmm. I, I often feel approached as the token woman and I bring this up, um, in the case of talking about race in psychedelic discourse. I mean, I don't know, and I really can't speak for those whose experience is different from mine. Obviously I, I would venture to guess that it has something to do with, um, you know, finding, finding challenges in, in knowing how to approach different people with different kinds of backgrounds and perspectives. I mean, the psychedelic movement is very, you know, white, upper middle class, uh, very privileged. Often for a long time, the discourse has been completely dominated by males. Um, which is interesting because there's this whole, I mean, you know, everybody's, everybody, who's everybody, but there's a lot of talk about shamanism in the discourse and how groovy it is and, and native peoples as, you know, having 
access to knowledge and, and life ways and perspectives that, that we seek after as um, a spiritually impoverished white Americans. Um, and yet there's not a lot of native voices in the discourse. So, um, so I'm really not sure. And I think, you know, maybe the way to do that is to, is to begin making more efforts to, to invite people in. I also think that just the idea of, you know, uh, freedom of consciousness is such an inherently privileged idea, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I think it's really unrelatable to people who are facing much more tangible everyday forms of injustice than, uh, you know, I mean, t- talking about the experience of people of color on the streets of Manhattan um, with stop and frisk and, you know, things like that, which are so much more kind of in your face than, than this war on consciousness. And I think that that discourse or that, not that discourse, but that idea of like a war on consciousness, I think it's alienating to people who are... Um, you know, more interested in, say, where the war on drugs fits into issues with the prison industrial complex, for example. Definitely. There's also a question of, you know, because there definitely are people in other kind of like cultural, racial, socioeconomic brackets that that are interested in these things. Like, so there are people who might be interested if they weren't consumed by working at a minimum wage job and providing for their families without government assistance. But there are definitely also like pockets of people that are interested in these topics already from different communities. And the question is, I think one of the questions is how do you reach out to people that you're not, that are not in your immediate circle without it seeming like this kind of token gesture of like, Oh, we want you to come like just because you're, you know, a, you know, a black woman or whatever it is, you know. Right. Cuz we don't we don't want to like objectify people like as you were saying, you don't want to feel like you're only invited to speak somewhere like because you're a woman and that if you were not a woman, your ideas would not be taken seriously. Right. Yeah, I I think this is a really interesting thing and one of the places that it takes my mind to um is one, the idea of psychedelic community in quotations, what on earth is it? And B, how is it relating to not psychedelic community? You know, um, because something I tried to gesture toward in my first talk um, at Psychedemia years ago was that, um, you know, you look at the demographics of a conference and you have a lot of lay people and you have a lot of professionals and scholars and researchers and doctors um, people are giving sort of spiritual power often over to, or like expecting enlightenment out of some of these psychedelic researchers who are humans like everybody else. They're doing great work and they're totally human. Um, and so there's this interesting way in which, um, you know, there's all kinds of flavors of psychedelia, just like there's all these different flavors of Christianity or of American or of, you know, any kind of identity there's going to be, sort of sub identities and subcategories within that, you know, there are people who are, are advocates for psychedelic use, whose use of psychedelics, like I, I would, would never, uh, it, it would simply not be my way. And it wouldn't be the way that I've been taught by my mentors and by my teachers. And they would very much probably say the same for me, or maybe they're totally against the idea of mentors and teachers to begin with and love psychedelics because it's like this, you know, cutting edge, very, um, 
you know, individuated and, and non hierarchical approach to creativity or spirituality or whatever it is that people are using these materials for. So, um, so the idea that it's just one community, I just, I just don't even know what that means, but it's also a community, whatever it is, that's very concerned with how it's perceived by the rest of the world. Definitely. Yeah, because you do hear that phrase thrown around all the time at, like, conferences and other kinds of gatherings, just the psychedelic community. You also find it in the psychedelic experience. You know, I, I you know, I read that in books and, and articles a lot, and it's I've read also people saying that that's a problematic phrase to use because it impl- implies that there's this kind of, like, fundamental experience that everybody accesses in a in a similar way which which I definitely don't think is true and I mean when it comes up at conferences because a lot of a lot of conference speakers and researchers don't you know either you know don't feel comfortable divulging their psychedelic experiences or you say that they don't personally have experience but are just you know researchers and in that in that case like the psychedelic community might refer to people who who frequent conference conferences like so it might be kind of like shorthand for psychedelic conference community whereas like a a rave kind of subculture that goes to music festivals and trips out in that context like might also use the phrase psychedelic community but be referring to something that's very very different right right and there's actually i think some tension between those communities you know um each one kind of maybe looking upon the other at different points saying, I don't know if you're doing it right, (laughs) you know, but also there's a way in which like, for instance, I see a lot in terms of like party culture and that kind of psychedelic community, um, people kind of taking research, um, findings and ideas and theories and using them to legitimate recreational drug use. Definitely. Which is fascinating because it's like, I mean, they might as well be different substances. The thing that you take on the dance floor um, is, a t- is a totally different thing than the thing that's taken in the school of dentistry at NYU <laughs> with blindfolds and ear shades where you've been preparing for weeks for a mystical experience to diminish end-of-life anxiety. Like, they might as well be different drugs. Right. Perhaps. I don't know. Also, you know, MAPS has this really interesting funding model um, Mm -hmm. and power to them. You know, I mean, they're doing such phenomenal work. Um, And part of the way that they get their funding is by is is by really engaging people in this kind of sense of psychedelic community, which is very gathering and party centric. Um, And it's not that the parties themselves raise money. It's that the parties bring people together and provide a sense of community and raise up a sense of support so that people will then make you know, moderate, small to moderate donations. And that's that's how MAPS has raised millions and millions of dollars to see their research projects through. So in some ways, like, there are aspects of the research that very much bank on a sense of community, even if it's an imagined community or a very um, transitory, brief, kind of one-night-only in <laughs> conjunction with a Conference X, you know? Right, right. Yeah, it's true. And and MAPS is an interesting case because I know that they have experimented with reaching out to different kinds of people in different ways. And there's been this, you know, just overhearing conversation. I think there's been this 
definite tension between that kind of party psychedelic community and research community in an extended sense, like not just people who, because they want to appeal to people who fund scientific research, period, not just people who fund psychedelic science research. And so I know that they experimented with kind of becoming more straight-seeming or square-seeming in order to appeal to those kind of like, you know, the broader research context. But I, I believe from, from conversation that when they tried to do that, their funding actually diminished because they were alienating their funding base, which turns out to be people who are personally invested in psychedelics from their own, you know, experience, in some cases, party experiences. So you have this really interesting, somewhat bizarre, you know, juxtaposition at some of the MAPS conferences between these, you know, halls of visionary artwork and, you know, selling selling artwork, hosting these parties. And then on the other side, you have these, like, you know, rows of chairs and the, you know, PhD presenting the peer-reviewed, you know, journal article. So, and I was actually, I was, I was interviewed at Psychedelic Science by a researcher at, um, what was it? No, I was a journalist with the writing for the Chronicle of Higher Education, which is, you know, the probably most widespread higher education uh, newspaper. And uh, so it was, it was interesting that they were covering it because, you know, it was kind of this return of psychedelics to academia. But, um, but she definitely noted that kind of strange coexistence because you don't really find that at other science conferences, really, you know, or like, or like research conferences completely. But while the funding is coming from the partiers, there's not really a way that, you know, people see to completely, you know, separate the the two spheres. Right. Right. Which in some ways to me, like it, it, um, this idea of like the image and the self image of the psychedelic community, you know, there maps as experimentation with becoming more accessible to a non psychedelic audience. Um, and then they're, they're kind of, you know, learning through that more about who their support base is. Um, I'm like trying to find the right words and I'm having a hard time finding the right words for this. Um, but psychedelia seems very concerned, I think, with how it's perceived from the outside because there has been a sense of um, attack and a sense of judgment and a sense of being marginalized, feeling marginalized by mainstream culture for the last 50 years. And I think in some ways the movement has really taken that on. Um, in some ways, I think to its detriment, you know, so we end up talking about, you know, abuses of power that are happening within the psychedelic community or ways in which, you know, there's, there's some questions coming up about certain research protocols or there's some political struggles or power struggles or there's some gender inequality. And it's like, well, people, people are afraid to acknowledge any of those things because they're, you know, whether it's legitimate or not, they're concerned about being perceived by the outside world as somehow, you know, it, it seems like all of these things become points of potential vulnerability and critique. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And I think there's this also this along with that, this feeling of needing to provide, needing to present 
a united front of like, you know, we're all in this together and everything is going great. And, you know, I think some people really feel that any, any kind of, you know, scar or, you know, part of that, that's not the smiley, happy aspect will, you know, diminish the, the whole and diminish the ability to like continue pressing out into kind of public awareness. But I think that's definitely a problematic stance to take. I mean, frankly, anybody who is, I think, watching from the outside would be skeptical of a movement that couldn't tolerate critique. I mean, what does it say that that somehow this this movement that believes that at times like makes the claim, maybe not the researchers, but maybe journalists or different characters who have a voice within the movement make the claim that that these materials and, and it has, is a panacea for the world's problems and that you know everybody in the world was more like us than than the world would be a better place and you know those kinds of those kinds of narratives which um, are kind of problematic in and of themselves right mm-hmm. um, and it's you know there are people who are really hurting in the world right now and that feel like they've tried everything that they know to to fix that feeling in themselves and then if they hear like oh well you just you know you go down to the amazon and you take this you know this brew and then all of a sudden your cancer is gone your anxiety is gone your headaches are gone you know for people that are feeling really desperate already because of having to live with whatever you know whatever uncomfortable thing it is that they're they're living with that that might be a little bit too you know seductive in the absence of any kind of like you know rigorous qualifying remarks right right i mean i think i made the point to you earlier nishe that you know as long as the problem of of sexual abuse in the amazon for example by ayahuascaros which is a you know it's ubiquitous according to, you know, a few researchers and people I've talked to have spent a lot of time in the Amazon, to leave that out of the story and to present this glimmering, sparkly, beautiful, glamorous, you know, this is the answer and everyone needs to do this, um, it, it does more, it's beyond complacency. It's actually facilitating abuse by making this shiny, perfect, beautiful, you know, invitation and endorsement. Um and, you know, I just, I can't go into much detail, but I, I spoke on the phone recently with a woman who underwent um, horrific, horrific treatment in the Amazon. When she came out of the forest, she weighed about 75 pounds and had to wear children's clothes. Um, wow. She was basically held captive. Um, you know, I mean, it's like you start to hear these stories. I, I hear some of these stories. But the thing is, there's also this layer, too, in terms of the Amazon. This is kind of an aside. But, you know, I'm out personally as a survivor of sexual violence by an ayahuascaro. Um, and I understand the fear of shamanic retribution. And I think, honestly, it's like I've been amazed at how, you know, a lot of women come forward and they talk to me about abuse. And, and we, we can we can talk about it. We can go there. But, um you know, very few women have been willing to talk with me about shamanic abuse, even some who've reached out. I mean, I've had a few reach out to me anonymously um, and they don't want me to know who they are. You know, they just because they're they're afraid of of 
the repercussions shamanically of speaking. And I think that's something that has to be taken seriously. You know, if people want to <laughs> take uh, shamanism seriously and all of its romance and glory, that dark side has to be taken seriously too. Um, so it's, it's a really sticky situation, especially when, you know, when people are reluctant to speak, but also when people are reluctant to, to listen and when people are reluctant mm. to create spaces for those conversations to be had, which is why those conversations are happening in the margins. A hundred percent. Yeah. But they are happening. That's the amazing thing is that, you know, the people, I talk to a lot of people who really have skin in the game and they really care about this work. Um, and, and they're, they're really concerned about these issues and want to see these issues, you know, brought to the fore and addressed in a broader way. Um, and so I think there's really actually a thirst and a hunger for that. And I'm hoping that people will, um, you know, find ways. I mean, you have obviously really been very courageous in organizing psychedemia and, you know, creating the space for people to come forward and speak who hadn't really had that chance before. Um, and, and you were courageous yourself for being able to bring up those subjects at psychedemia. Like I heard from so many people in the, you know, years afterwards that referred back to like, oh, Lily's talk there was, you know, she brought up so many things that, you know, I'd, I'd wanted to hear people talk about or that I'd, I'd, I'd been thinking about, but I hadn't heard anyone else talking about some of these like difficult, like really like self-reflective topics. And so the fact that people responded so well to that, you know, I, I definitely think that goes along to, to support what you're saying about the, the thirst, the thirst for more of that. And I also think it's a sign of maturity Mm-hmm. In any kind of community, if you're, you're you're willing and able to look the issues like in the face and want to get to the bottom of it and not just gloss over anything that is less than ideal. It's like when you have those, a lot of the early psychedelic research was upon like closer inspection, not taken seriously by other researchers because the the inconvenient aspects like the Marsh Chapel experiment there was one one of the people who had taken the psilocybin ended up, you know, having a hard time and running out of the church and, and going away, and they had to be, like, chased after. And that was just left out of the study that said, like, oh, all of these divinity students, like, had a mystical experience. Like, but what about that one person, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the fact that the early research, a lot of the holes in it, dealt with the, this complete, you know, desire to, like, exercise anything that didn't fit with a desired narrative I mean I feel like that alone should speak to the importance of not repeating that error wow amen I didn't realize that Panky had written that out of the study um because I've heard that story I just I just heard that that recently so I'm not sure of the exact details but I know that also with uh with uh Timothy Leary his recidivism study with uh, prisoners who you know, he he claimed that people, prisoners who had had these mushroom experiences were less likely to re- return to prison. Upon closer inspection, like, the data didn't support that conclusion. So it's like this this investment in the smiling, sunny narrative that's actually making the, you know, the research be taken, like, taken less seriously. I guess that in some ways, like, this is the nature of conflict of interest, 
Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely think that's true. And you have a, a problem when there are these like specific conferences and podcasts that you know, it, in in many ways, are a technology for the dissemination of like you know the cultural narrative and research narrative around these issues and the people that hold the keys to those technologies also control the way that information is circulating amongst different different researchers and different people who are interested in the topic. So, you know, I've heard so many times people who want to bring up some of the harder issues, some of the some of the stories that, you know, are lost pretty and, you know, involve like asking and answering difficult questions. A lot of people say like, you know, well, that's that's not the kind of talk that we want yep. represented here. Yep. And, you know, when there's only so many conferences and only so many podcasts that people go to and listen to, and, and you know, if, if some of those major venues are, are resisting the topics because of, like, the other looking in, it's like, it's like this, uh, you know, half of it, is for the purpose of the researchers and the, you know, people interested in the topics to gather and come together. But another half of it is this curation for the public, you know, and trying to get the ideas like, you know, packaged and, and presented in a, in a, you know, ingestible format. And, you know, cause you don't, you don't have that same problem at the women's visionary Congress, which is intentionally, you know, a more private event. It doesn't put its talks up on the internet and it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's a more, it's more for the people who are there to talk to each other. And so when you have this intentional like broadcasting, I think for some people there's this pressure to, to curate out, you know, any of the unseemly elements that unseemly from their perspectives. Right. Which is amazing. It's like, I mean, this is maybe a poor analogy, but it's like, you know, have you ever been sort of falling in love with somebody that you think is really wonderful? And then one day in some conversation, they will allude to like a flaw that they have or a growth edge that they have that they are working on and they're aware of it. And, and you just see them starting to kind of courageously, you know, work this, this thing in them through so that it's no longer, uh, feels so that they no longer have to like struggle with it in the same way, whatever it is like that acknowledgement of imperfection is so attractive, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, that's the surefire way to, you know, move the, like, I'm kind of fallen to like, Oh my God, I love you. Even like friend love, you know, it's just like, yeah. it's like, it's so impressive when, when people can really reflect on themselves and, and take action in that kind of a way. Um, I, it's also that, someone will see the flaws and someone it's like you can't keep up a smiling face to all people at all times and if you're not the one who is stepping up and trying to like figure out some of the things that you're doing some of your behaviors that aren't working in your or your community's best interest if you're not the one doing that work someone else is going to see that that stuff is going on and that you're not 
dealing with it, that you don't want to talk about it. And it's not very, you know, if you have a problem and you're willing to talk about it, like in a relationship even, you know, if you're if you're having some kind of ongoing issue with a, a friend or a significant other, if they're not willing to talk about it with you, it's really, you know, the, the amount of hope at finding a way through that, like diminishes rapidly so it's like even if you have a problem if you're willing to talk about it and face it and not kind of cow away from the parts of it that you don't like you know I mean that that's how you do the work of becoming like a more you know self-aware and actualized person right well and it's funny it's like isn't I mean I don't know there is no universal psychedelic experience I I think that's a really important point to make and to hold to um that being said I think um you know one of the things I've really learned from my work with different materials over many years now is you know to have the courage to turn towards what's difficult um, and to go to the places where there's resistance and find softening and to give voice to the things of which I am most afraid and in some cases most ashamed, hmm. you know, and if it, it's like that to me is the nature of the work, you know, that's that's part of why these materials are magical. It's like you want to work with healing PTSD. It's like, you know, I think one of the ways that that works is creating a, a physical and psychological state of being that's conducive to difficult material coming to the surface and, and, and being kind of properly metabolized and released and integrated, um, into memory and into consciousness. Um, you know, psilocybin mushrooms in the case of end of life anxiety, just taking a guess here, but it's like the idea is not to skirt around the thing of which a person is afraid, you know, people are afraid, which would be death. The idea is to say, well, there's death and it's looking me in the face and I'm going to keep looking it in the face and now I'm going to put some mushrooms in my mouth or in this case, a psilocybin <laughs> pill and, and I'm going to really just be with it, you know, and maybe that experience is really challenging. Maybe that experience is really easy and opening and ecstatic and blissful and probably a combination of both and everywhere in between. Um, but that's, that's the nature of the work. It's like at a certain point, I think, you know, we have to take our focus off of the power of the states themselves and really look at the ways in which we carry the teachings of those states into our lives um, as, you know, people who are psychedelic people but are also more than psychedelic people. You know, like, I'm a psychedelic woman, but I'm also a lot of other things. Right. You know, so there, it, it's... It does come back, I think, to this, you know, movement beyond focusing on the drugs and the materials themselves and the states themselves and and just kind of expanding our our horizons and expanding ourselves into into what comes beyond that, which I think your word maturation was just gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's it's something that I think we need to go through, you know, in order to become like more dynamic in the kinds of research questions we're asking and the kinds of, you know, you know, people we're, we're talking to and views we're incorporating. And I think that it really needs to be gone through to, to send a message to the wider public that, you know, we're not, we still think that despite the darkest most, you know, difficult parts of, you know, anything touching on the psychedelic, you know, experience, psychedelic experiences. So I really think that there's something powerful 
in the statement that psychedelics, there's something beautiful and worthwhile and worth fighting for and protecting in the study and use of psychedelics, despite the reality of all of the darker parts and all of the, you know, the uglier aspects of the use and the experience of it, because, you know, it kind of speaks powerfully in a way to how powerful and how positive it can be. And I think the darker parts are something that can be worked through and addressed and that someone's going to notice the darker parts, even if we're not pointing them out. And those people might not be sympathetic to the positive aspects. And so if it's someone who's really outspoken against psychedelics, that's the one that's taking the lead and talking about the darker aspect, that doesn't look very good, I think, for the the researchers and the people who are trying to argue for the positive aspects. And, that, you know, I, I, I in conversation a few times, I've been, like, alluding to the, the whole pedophilia story with uh, Penn State, uh, university because they had their their football team and then they had their their assistant coach was caught you know involved in pedophilia and they told the coach and they told the school president and they wanted to you know protect the team and present a united front and kind of like you know brush everything under the rug but guess what it came out and it looked really really bad so it's like maybe in the short term you know ignoring things might, you know, in a false way kind of provide this protection. But in the longer term, it actually is like the opposite. It it completely works against what you're trying to, to achieve. I think that's a wonderful example and a wonderful point. I've actually quoted you more than once since you (laughs) brought that idea and that story to my attention at Horizons. Um, because I think it, it really gets at the issue, you know, there's, there's always a million reasons to stay silent, you know, protecting institutions, protecting something that someone cares about, protecting abusers, you know, um, oftentimes there's a dynamic where you have a victim and you have an abuser and then law enforcement shows up at the door and the dynamic takes a turn um, you know, so that the, the law enforcement is now the abuse, the abuser and the, um, when they should be the protector, they're the abuser, the, the person who was abusing another person becomes the victim and the victim becomes the protector of who mm-hmm. was formerly their abuser, you know? So there's always a gajillion reasons to stay silent about these things. Um, and I have, you know, for myself been, uh, really seriously, you know, examining my own story and how and why to tell it and so on and if I should tell it. And I've heard some incredibly compelling cases for, you know, why I should not. Um, But it seems that none of those cases stand up to, um, to the kind of story that you're saying, you know, that you're telling about, about Penn State. Um, because ultimately, brushing things under the rug, eventually the rug is full of freaking mm. bumps, <laughs> and somebody trips and falls, and they pick it up, and oh my god, look at all this abuse, <laughs> you know? That's right. Like, whoa, where did that come from? Well, we all knew it was there all along, but we were sweeping it under the rug, because that was easier <laughs> than opening the door and sweeping it out. Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. 
And then there's also the question, there's the innocent, or innocent in quotes, there's the sort of, you know, there's the one who sweeps it under the rug because they're afraid. But then there's also people that are a little bit more intentional about it and that are kind of controlling what information gets out at the conferences. And I think, you know, maybe don't, have the best motivations for why they're including some things and why they're not including other things. And, you know, what what to do in cases where people aren't... Because I think there are some people that you could talk to and say, these are the reasons why I think that we should be presenting this material. And then there are other people that would not even be willing to have the conversation. They have their mind made out up. They have their own kind of, like, agenda that they're trying to push and they're not, like, willing to consider other perspectives. Right. And what do you do when people like that are controlling or have the keys to some of these technologies of, of you know, disseminating information? Like, how do you, do you, you know, start a renegade blog, a renegade platform, you know, conference, podcast? I mean, happily, Lorenzo is very encouraging with, you know, the kinds of materials that, you know, go out through the the Psychedelic Salon, but there are other pretty major venues that are not open to to discussing a lot of, you know, the the issues we've been talking about. Yeah, and that is the, that's the, that's the conundrum in some ways, or that's the, that's the issue, you know, and I think there's something to be said for creating alternatives and finding avenues where there are avenues. But I think there's also something to be said about like, you know, and it's almost like something I, I, oh, I want to say just to psychedelia more broadly. It's like we can talk about this stuff, these values, these teachings, the magic of these medicines until the cows come home. But it's only when we're actually living into them that people start paying attention you know, and this sort of, what's this person's secret? What have they got going on? Because, like, whatever they're doing seems to be working, you know? That compels people to get interested. Um, And I think there's something about, you know, just realizing that there is a thirst in the psychedelic community as there is a thirst in the American community um, for real talk. Yeah, for, for honesty. Totally. Even when, you know, it feels like dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. um, people, people love it and they thrive off of it um, and they're moved by it. And so, you know, I think just continuing to find ways to bring those conversations to the public and, and to people and just, you know, doing it for the people that are interested in catching on and, and who are kind of like, oh, finally somebody said it, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's such a good feeling when that happens. And, and hopefully, eventually, you know, these, uh, these venues where, you know, other voices are unwelcome or simply not afforded space um, will catch on or else they'll just become obsolete. Mm-hmm. You know? I, yeah, I definitely, I definitely hear that. But then I, I think that there's another layer to... The issue, which is that, like, there's topics about, you know, the Amazon and shamanism that are not pretty, you know, and there's the question of how to bring that more into open conversation. But then there's the related question about what to do when there are people in 
the United States or like, you know, the local psychedelic research community that are, you know, have histories of, you know, sexual abuse or, you know, making women feel inferior or less welcome or, you know, just talking down to them. It's like, what do you do when there are people who are visible and who are making decisions that are impacting the way that knowledge is being disseminated? Because it's like, that's a whole other kind of can of worms in terms of how do you, how do you publicize that? Because I feel like not publicizing it in any way does exactly what we were talking about you know, being implicit in the abuses in the Amazon yeah. does. It's like if we if we don't say anything, then it's just going to continue. And there are some figures that I've had so many separate conversations with other people and everybody has a story of something horrible that happened in an exchange with that person. And luckily, like the people that I've talked to are strong enough and motivated enough that they're not going to be swayed by patently misogynistic or, you know, otherwise like comments from someone that's, you know, exterior. But, you know, there could very well be people who are drawn to some of these conferences, some of these gatherings who don't know. Because I talked to, for example, at Horizons, I talked to people who made it, you know, because I'm relatively local in Philly to New York City, but I've heard I heard from people who made pilgrimages there who, like, you know, live very far away, and it was, like, a really meaningful thing that they were coming out to this conference to share in this work and in this, you know, community. And what happens if there's someone who really wants to get involved and is really excited and enthusiastic and, you know, what if they're confronted with that kind of a reaction from someone or that kind of, like, put down, you know? And do we let that keep going? Absolutely. This is such an important point. This is such an important point. And, you know, I think you and I are in interesting positions because we are women and we are educated and we are on our way um, deeper and deeper into sort of the central powers of what some call psychedelic community, i.e. And, and also, oh, sorry, what? Well, I was just going to say, we have, like, we have we have voices, we have amplified voices. Because um, there's, there's also the other le- level of, like, we both have Ivy League degrees, you know? Like, it's like that that gives us this level of power that other people, like, don't have. Absolutely. Well, and, and a sense of personal empowerment, too. Um, but, but the issue I also want to point to is, like, that you know, in some ways, um, when it comes to these issues, we're, I think, limited in what we can say publicly, um, because we, you and I both, I think, want to keep speaking, you know, and, and finding ways, measured ways of, of, you know, getting this word out there, um, presents a really unique challenge, because it's like, you know, I don't want that to be the last thing I say that anybody's listening to. Um, and I'm not sure that it would be, but you know, that's part of the, that's part of the threat and part of the narrative. I think that, um, that, you know, cause abusers are completely reliant on silence. Mm-hmm. That's what they rely on to do what they do, you know? So it's like, on the one hand, it's like, well, to just break through that and, you know, name names or to, you know, I mean, there's definitely a strong impulse to do that. And I can see like the potential blowback, you know, and so it just it's difficult to navigate, which is, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that we're at least opening the door for further conversation now in this manner of just like, 
acknowledging some of the issues. Um, and ultimately, I think it's just important, if nothing else, that our listeners and ourselves as we move forward continue to keep alive talks in the margins and trust that those talks will and are making their way into the broader discourse and the more public conversation. I don't know. What do you think? Well, that phrase, like, trust that it will, might, you know, also discourage some people from taking action because they might, like, assume that someone else, like, because everyone's whispering it, someone else will move it forward, you know? And that that could be dangerous depending on, you know, whether or not it kind of instills a complacency. Oh, that is a vital and essential point. Yeah. Um. And and what you were saying about, you know, the kind of the threat of burning bridges, you know, and, and, and ostracizing people in power in the psychedelic research community, there's also, I've heard stories of explicit threats from people who say, who say to like junior researchers or people interested in going into research that if you tell people about me in this way, like I will make sure that you do not have a a job in this field. Like I have heard that, you know, secondhand, but verbatim, not even an implicit worry. So maybe, I mean, maybe as the conversations and the margins amplify and, you know, if we can encourage more of that, maybe it'll trickle up to someone who, doesn't care about the blowback and is a little bit more securely situated in their career. And, you know, maybe they might take the initiative, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know that there's any kind of like very obvious way to address this. Yeah. You know, I think two things come to my mind. And the first is that, you know, Partially, it's important to at least have the conversations become very robust in the margins so that by the time they're out in public, they're, they're robust statements that can withstand whatever blowback or critique might come from it. Um, and so that there's actually an established network of support among individuals who um, care about the issue and care about the person or persons who are coming forward to speak. You know, mm. um, I think being organized in that way um, is a really powerful thing, and I think it's an effective thing. Um, the other point... Oh, keep going. I mean, the other point I was going to make is just that ultimately, you know, when all is said and done, these things do have to be said sooner than later, partially because, you know, skirting around the issue and, and talking about it um, without going all the way does actually just reinscribe the very power that we're talking about wanting to dismantle you know, um, and actually makes true by silence, you know, the fact that, that this person or these people or these individuals with power um, can get away with this shit because we'll talk about it, but we won't actually name them. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I think that there's, it, it is very pressing because I know, like I've talked to people that feel like really smart you know, motivated people that don't want to go to certain events or, like, participate in, you know, research discourse because they've had really uncomfortable 
run-ins with people. And if if those people that are talking down to other people and making them feel unwelcome are causing other people to leave the community at their expense, like that's a really really big problem in my opinion especially if it's younger people that want or would be interested in potentially making a career for themselves in psychedelic research if those people are being turned away that's that's really bad it's really bad it's really bad yeah there are moments when as you know I have considered being one of those people who who turns and walks away um and you know, it's, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. And it's happening. I mean, we're not speculating at this point, like it's happening. Like we are losing young researchers and we are, um, turning people off and turning people away. That's something that is actually happening. Um, it's not just pie in the sky. I mean, so, I mean, it is kind of fortuitous to have this like kind of podcast platform because, it is a way to bring, you know, these margin conversations possibly to a wider audience or maybe people who have, like, their own stories that they've, like, not shared with people might feel like stepping forward and, and saying something since they realize that they're not alone. Because some of these people that, you know, they, they make people feel like they're stupid, like they're, you know, they're worthless or they're not as good as other people. And when people internalize that, they're not going to step forward and say, cause they'll, they'll say like, Oh, like I'm, I'm not involved anymore because I wasn't good enough or I wasn't, you know, I didn't have the, the right skill set or, or social connections, you know? And that, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's really sad. It's so incredibly sad, you know? And I think it's something that, um, that might be, I would venture to guess, it's something that women are more susceptible to than men. I think men are very used to, you know, feeling they have, that they have voice and they have value and they have worth kind of intrinsically. I think with women, I know for myself, I'm very public about this, you know, my, my speaking out about the things that I speak about and really my speaking publicly at all, I often come up against voices of like, you know, this, this isn't important. This doesn't count. You don't get to speak. And I think that that's an experience that's really common to a lot of women. So to have that in any way, like preyed upon or, or fed from the outside so that it becomes a dominant inner narrative um, you know, mm. that's really paralyzing. There's a lot of women, especially I think that are susceptible to it, but there's this other piece too about anger, um, which I've been, you know, thinking about a lot. And a friend of mine was reminding me yesterday that if you, if you really know anything about love, then, then you have to know anger, you know, because if you love something or if you love someone that is suffering from some injustice, you can't not be angry about it, you know, mm-hmm. um, and still love the thing or still love the person. Um, but, you know, I was I found it very interesting. One of the last talks at Horizons this weekend was an interesting presentation by Amber Lyon. And there was a point in the talk when somebody was asking, you know, about anger or something like that. And Amber's response was a response that I, I think I've heard actually quite a few times before in different contexts of like, oh, you know, we're supposed to we're supposed to transcend that and we're supposed to, you know, operate from a place of love and inspire people that way because anger doesn't work. And I just thought, well, there's a couple issues there. The first is that basically every successful political movement that I know of has used anger very effectively. 
um, as fuel for the fire. I, I don't think anybody can talk about the civil rights movement without acknowledging that there was anger involved, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's incredibly important. Um, and I think, you know, on another level, that idea that anger doesn't count and that we don't listen to it is just a way of taking emotional experience more broadly, which our society imagines as feminine and saying that mm-hmm. that doesn't count. It must be logical and rational and objective for people to listen Mm-hmm. Um, or love and lighty, your convenience in some way. yeah. But the other issue too is that, you know, because women, as far as I can see in my observations and study and research, you know, women tend to internalize anger in the form of depression. Um, and it functions mm-hmm. to silence women, especially, you know, I think these belittling and, and demeaning in- interactions with persons in power um, you know, the natural response is outrage and is anger. I feel angry mm-hmm. about this. I really do. But I feel angry in a way that's life-giving. And the reason for that is because I have a voice and I'm not afraid to use it. You know, like if I didn't feel that I had a voice and an outlet to speak these things and speak them honestly, I would probably explode or implode. You know, uh, implode in the form of depression, actually. And that's mm-hmm. something that I spent a lot of my life doing. It's been a process of claiming my voice and coming out of that. But, you know, I mean, this is this is real stuff. This is really real stuff. And um, I think it's it's going to be it's part of, I think, how people are enculturated in America. So, of course, it impacts psychedelic culture and it's going to mm-hmm. keep impacting us until we find, you know, avenues and outlets to speak and there are something that, you know, just came up that I think, you know, I, I would really like to, to add to this conversation is that there's also, I think, an issue with, like, you know, sociopathic type personalities being drawn to positions of power and then only being interested, like, you only have worth as a woman, as a young woman, to those people if you are powerful and well-connected and therefore a source of power to them to be your friends or as a sexual object. And if you lack both of those things, you're invisible. And I've seen, I've seen, I've seen that happen. I've seen it multiple times and I've heard from other people who have also either seen or experienced that. Absolutely. Absolutely. In any case, a woman is an object through which power is obtained, you know, either by being sexual object on the arm of person X or being an avenue for connection Y. Right. Right. And then uh, the other thing I was going to say was that, like, imagine if, because there's one thing that's like, you know, removing the disrespect from the equation when like a young woman interested in the field speaks to someone in power in the field removing the the disrespect is really important but imagine if every one of those negative interactions was instead the person you know the young person being encouraged and honored and connected to other people who want to support them and encourage them I mean I think that that would really revolutionize the kind of, you know, momentum that the research community has. If, you know, everybody who stepped forward was, like, honored for their enthusiasm. But that's that's just not happening right now. 
Uh, it's got everything to do with, I think, a, a certain competitiveness and a certain, I don't know, privileged elitism maybe. I don't, I mean, that's just like the tip of the freaking iceberg, but the point that you're making, I think, mm-hmm. is, is incredibly, incredibly important. Because I think that some people see the conference as, and I know you've talked about this before, it's like the speakers are the rock stars, and then there's the common folk that come from, you know, the larger, you know, public community, and that, you know, it's like they see it as like someone from the audience asking to come backstage, and some people are like, no way, like, who are you to even be talking to me? I'm the rock star, you know, and that, that really should not, I think it has no place, you know, in the kind of conference settings or other settings, but it definitely exists there. Wow. Wow. Well, especially since like there is an archetype that, uh, I don't think it's really an archetype, but there's this like character that has been created by certain, maybe more like popular members of the movement with amplified voices, like not researchers, but maybe writers and such of the shamanic rock Mm -hmm. star, you know, which Mm -hmm. is just like, I mean, people call themselves that they call themselves shamanic rock stars. It's like, whoa, Mm -hmm. like, can we just get real for a second about like what this, I mean, isn't the whole point of these materials to like dissolve the ego and like put the wellness of others and things larger than ourselves, maybe before our own personal gain. Um, and yet, mm-hmm. you know, the, I think the very essence of like the, the notion of like a, a rock star is there's a selfishness that comes with it. There's an inaccessibility that comes with it. There's a, you know, I'm the man or I'm the woman and I can get whatever I want. And, you know, I mean, there's it's a very mm-hmm. interesting character, those rock stars. I was just going to say, I'm not doing justice at all to, to the complexity of that dynamic, but, but it is a dynamic and it's popular in the party culture and it's popular in the academic culture too. It's, it's showing its face. And I, I've seen some people that take on that rock star role, even in the conference setting. And then, you know, at the after party, they're the, the cool ones that are, they're like giving drugs to all the young kids and you know that that's that's not a good thing you know to have that because it's like if you're taking on that rock star personality and it's carrying over into partying like a rock star what kind of message does that send amen to that amen to that and these are all all of these things that we've been talking about it's looked down on if you, like you, if you try to have a, a public conversation about it, you're looked at, a lot of people look at you as if you're trying to, you know, create problems or you're trying to, you know, you know, make the the psychedelic research movement less strong and less, you know, and that's it. Just is definitely. I'm glad that we've had this opportunity to at least touch on some of the issues because like for a few years like this is stuff that I've been like gradually thinking about and made me feel uncomfortable in myself over the years to notice things and not feel like I had a way to to voice like the the things that I've been noticing because it just didn't it didn't feel right to sit back while I was witnessing these like injustices and you know right right 
And I think, you know, we're coming to, you know, an hour here, so it's probably good to wind down, but, but I think you've started to kind of open the door for acknowledging the real, the real thing that underscores this entire conversation. And that, in my opinion, is love. It's love for this work. It's love for this field. It's love for whatever this culture or community is that calls itself psychedelic. Um, you know, I feel like I would venture to speak for you and I both to say we love this so much um, that we want to see it done in the best way that it can and we want to see it succeed and um, and we want to explore whatever it is we need to explore and reckon with what we need to reckon with so that um, so that this beautiful thing that we love so much can live on. Amen. <sighs> well, I suppose that concludes our broadcast for the day. Um, thanks so much to our listeners for listening in. And please, please, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking. We want to hear your stories. And we want to encourage you to share them in whatever ways feel good to you. Nishé, do you want to say some parting words? Um, we'll just, I'll add that on the salon listing, at least there's a contact information for both of us. So if you want to, if you feel like reaching out, we would love to, to hear from you and, you know, continue this conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really what is going to keep this conversation alive, you know, is, is people willing to reach out to each other and say hi and, you know, let us know what you're thinking. Cause, um, cause that's what's needed. That's what's needed. All right. Be well, fe fellow travelers. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Onwards. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And as Nishé just said, if you go to the program notes for this podcast, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us, you will find ways in which you can contact both Lily and Nishé. And hopefully, if you have comments or questions, that uh, you'll also make them known in our comments sections for these podcasts. While uh, sometimes things get lost in my email inbox, all comments to our program notes have to be personally approved by me before they appear in the blog. So if you want to get my attention, you can always post a question in the comments sections. And uh, even if I don't reply, you can be 100% sure that I've at least read your comment or message. Now, uh, before I forget it, I want to add my two cents about what was just said about speakers at some conferences acting like rock stars. First of all, uh, that's really too bad, and it doesn't reflect well at all on the power of our psychedelic medicines to make us better people. Obviously, uh, simply ingesting a lot of drugs isn't going to magically transform a jerk into a nice guy. It takes a lot of introspection and mental processing to transform a psychedelic experience into an experience that enhances one's life. And for what it's worth, not all of the celebrities on the psychedelic conference circuit are acting like rock stars. I think that the best example of that was found at the legendary and theobotany conferences that were held in Palenque for a number of years. Uh, for example, in 1999, the speakers included Anne and Sasha Shulgin, Paul Stamets, Terence McKenna, Michael Bach, Manuel and Donna Torres, Jonathan Ott, Christian Rash, Rob Montgomery, and Giorgio Samarini. And if you aren't familiar with all of those names, when you look them up, you're going to discover that back in 1999, these were the very top names in our community, and uh, not a rock star among them. 
For seven days and nights, they joined the 80 or so uh, participants in family-style meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And in the evenings, after the night's lecture, the speakers and us participants would sit around the end of the pool or on our cabin porches in smaller groups, talking and passing a pipe around. I'm still somewhat amazed at uh, all that transpired during those conferences. And today, many of the women and men who are now giving presentations at our conferences were attendees at Palenque. It was uh, a good model for a conference, and hopefully we can have more like it in the future. That said, the point that Nishe and Lily just brought up about these conferences being, uh, well, kind of unaffordable for all but a few fortunate souls, well, it's an important point. In my own case, I was 57 years old before I had enough disposable income for the first time in my adult life that I could uh, attend a conference like this. And that's one of the reasons that I started doing these podcasts. I realized how fortunate I was to uh, make it to Palenque, and I also realized that it continues to get more difficult each year to come up with the money to attend a conference or a festival. And so, we now have the marvels of podcasting to, well, to at least spread this information around a bit more. And I hope that I don't need to point out that without you and some of your friends listening to these podcasts, well, there'd be no point in me posting them each week. So, uh, we're all in this together, you know. I hope that uh, in the interest of strengthening our little world here, that uh, we'll accept the challenge just laid down to begin openly discussing things about the psychedelic community that, well, that aren't quite right and can use some fixing. For one thing, it's been pointed out quite frequently that for far too long, the public face of our community has been largely that of white males. Fortunately, however, the deeper you connect with this community, the more you'll discover that the situation isn't quite as dire as it was 20 years ago. And uh, as a grandfather whose five grandchildren include four girls, well, this topic is of more than just a passing interest to me. (laughs) In fact, as I was uh, listening to Nishay and Lily with you just now, I thought about the fact that by the time my granddaughters are in their 30s, that Nishay and Lily will be two of the elders by then. Uh, Just as you will, too, by the way. (laughs) Don't forget that fact. One day you are going to be an elder of this community. And it's much easier to do than you may think. The main thing that it takes is, uh, well, just live long. (laughs) That means, of course, not taking any unnecessary risks or doing something really stupid. And I'll have more to say about uh, taking an honest inventory of our community in our next podcast. Uh, But even though it's time to sign off right now, there's one more topic that I need to cover real quickly. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you know that last March I did a little fundraiser. And for a premium, for a donation of $45 or more, I sent the donors a thumb drive with almost 16 gigabytes of audio files. At least I sent most of the donors their thumb drives. (laughs) Unfortunately, there are still eight of them left to be sent, but I don't have the addresses for these donors. So if you happen to be one of these kind souls, please send an email with your address on it to donations at matrixcast. That's M-A-T-R-I-X-C-A-S-T, matrixcast.com. And I'll send your thumb drive that contains the first 400 podcasts from the salon plus a 128 Terrence McKenna sound bites that I've collected. And I've collected them mainly for musicians who uh, want to include a few words from Terrence in their work. But uh, now those sound bites are also online for you to access as well. And you can find them on our program notes page, which you get to via psychedelicsalon.us. 
At the top menu is the word extras. Click it and uh, you'll see a link for the sound bites, which I think we can have some fun with here. Now, except for a corny joke that I'm about to tell, we're at the end of this podcast, so don't feel badly about turning it off here. But if you're still with me, here goes. <laughs> this is really bad. I'm sure that you already know this old joke about a young man who is sent to prison, and after the lights go out the first night, there's uh, some shouting, and the guy says, 57, and then he hears uh, all the prisoners in the cell block laughing. And a moment later, somebody says, 73, and there's more laughter. And this goes on for a while longer, and so he asks his cellmates what's going on. Long story short here. The explanation is that there's a joke book in the prison that everybody knows by heart, and each joke has a number. So at night, instead of telling the entire joke, they just shouted out the number to remind one another of it. And a few nights later, this new guy decides to join in, and so he shouts out, 79. But nobody laughs. And when he asked his cellmate why nobody laughed, the guy said, Well, some people know how to tell a joke and some don't. <laughs> now, <laughs> actually, I can string this joke out for several minutes when I'm in the mood. But uh, luckily for you, I'm <laughs> only using this joke as an illustration of what can be done with the Terrence McKenna sound bites. For example, if I string together the numbers 51, 73, 79, 94, 128, 62, and 7, here's what we get. Killed by cow fart. <laughs> well, nobody said life wasn't fraught with peril, right? Permission for heresy is never a bad idea. No religion in the West since Ur has been able to come to terms with the psychedelic experience because it mitigates male dominance, hierarchy, and all the other things that are the methods by which we do business. Well, a single mistake would screw the pooch. So, a, uh, a unfortunate turn of phrase that <laughs> I've picked up. <laughs> The world just seems quite crazy at the moment. Because the fact of the matter is, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows. Nobody has the faintest idea. The best guesses are lies. You may be sure of it. <laughs> now it's your turn. If you come up with something interesting or fun by stringing these sound bites together, please post your lists in the comments section for the sound bites page. And if this is something that enough of our fellow slaughters find interesting, I'll post a few hundred more of these little gems that I've collected for you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>